Okay. Hello, V. Hello, Christine. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Rachel. So we are doing something we haven't done before, which is always what we're doing. <laughs> um, and this is some kind of behind the scenes interim between episode updates. And I have a very messy post note here with sort of a plan of maybe what we're going to talk about and possibly the order we're going to talk about it in. But one thing is that we know that we want to do very little, if any, editing, hopefully. And so try not to say anything you don't want to say. I'm obviously speaking mostly to myself. Um, <laughs> I think both of you have uh, a little more sense and restraint than I do. Um, but of course, we can edit anything out, and that's fine too. So I thought, first of all, we would introduce V and just find out who you are and how you came to be part of the Commonplace team and any thoughts you want to share um, with us about Commonplace. And then I thought we maybe could check in with you, Christine, and find out how you're doing and any Commonplace-related thoughts and hopes and dreams and fears. And then I thought we would get to the apology section about why we have been so slow to release episodes recently. And there are many pieces to that, um, including some team changes, some personal stuff that's um, going on with me. And then we had uh, some kind of like requests for listeners and, a, and some updates on kind of episodes that we're hoping to uh, share uh, some already recorded and some not um, in the future. So V, would would you be willing to introduce yourself and say the strange and interesting way in which we come to know each other. Yeah. Um, I'm Valentine Connady. Uh, you two know me, of course, but the people listening don't. So um, I come to Commonplace uh, via Rachel. I have been Rachel's assistant for going on four, five months now. And I um, started working with the podcast slowly um, and, you know, in, in talking with Rachel, got more and more excited about the sort of possibilities for working on the podcast more long term and with a more significant role um, than the kind of uh, filling in work that I had been doing. I'm a poet. I am an editor. I am a big reader. And so I'm, I'm excited always to talk about books. Awesome. And is it okay for me to sort of share how you became um, my assistant? Um, Absolutely. I think that's relevant. Um, I mean, this sort of uh, leaps ahead a tiny bit to the Rachel is overwhelmed section, but I had uh, invited Claudia Rankin to come and speak in my class in the fall in my MFA class at NYU uh, because we were talking about Don't Let Me Be Lonely and her newest book, Just Us. And I really was very overwhelmed and really messed up and was not on top of how I was uh, communicating the time and the details to Claudia and felt really terrible about it. And I was communicating and miscommunicating to Claudia's assistant, um, Emily Skillens. And I was like, oh my God, I, I'm really messing up. And um, Claudia is someone who I really admire and also consider a friend. And it was very embarrassing um, that I was, you know, not organized enough. And I asked Emily, you know, this is such a embarrassing request, but do you know somebody who could help me be more organized so I don't make these kinds of mistakes again? And Emily connected me um, with you and, and V at the time you were working at Poets House. Um, and so you started uh, doing this kind of like assistant work, which is, which is a, a, a very catch-all phrase for the kinds of things that you were helping me do. Like 
kind of just get back on my feet and figure out even what I needed to do next in what order. Um, and you did not have a lot of time at that point. Um, and then was like two weeks after I think um, that Poets House uh, basically fired everybody. Yeah, so it was a weird sort of fortuitous union busting incident. But, you know, it's, um, I'm excited that it sort of brought me into a position where I could spend more time thinking about commonplace and um, working on, you know, a lot of your projects. Yeah. And Christine, you are very familiar with the lot of projects at the same time. You know, you've been in that position uh, with me and in our relationship over the years uh, in many different ways. Um, how how are you doing commonplace-wise, but also more importantly, how are you doing otherwise? It's really been a long time since, I mean, my trip to Los Angeles when we recorded um, the episode featuring you and your new book was the last time I traveled anywhere before the pandemic. Um, so Commonplace listeners have not heard um, any updates from you um, since then, I think. Wow, I can't believe that's the last time you traveled before the pandemic. That is wild. Um, that feels a really like it's a really long time ago. Um, it's I, I'm finding it hard to answer this question without like this logoria of like what would seem like a bad disjointed lyric poem or something because <laughs> I just I feel like every day is just you know it's I'm still going through this like tough pandemic period of um, having a sort of lack of focus having. Um, sort of a lack of creativity, um, partially just because there's no separation between my work and home space right now. And there's really nowhere to go or what to, to do anything that, that can become some sort of separate outlet besides walking outside, which is great, but is not the same thing as seeing friends and traveling and doing all that. Um, so, you know, I'm, in this position where it feels, you know, every day feels a little more hopeful, I guess, on moving to a new stage of, for the world, um, but still a cloud of uncertainty always. That said, you know, I'm really excited to be, um, you know, for us to start ramping up some new projects in Commonplace and start thinking about them because that working on the show does take me out of sort of this uh, mindset a little bit, right? It starts to allow me to envision the larger world of like writers and thinkers and makers. Um, and so creating that sort of imaginative space is, is so important and um, really just keeps things, you know, exciting for me. And yeah, and then I guess personally, you know, I haven't been working so much on a new manuscript this year, but have oddly been doing script writing as like a kind of hobby and hmm. um, way of learning it because it's what's been good about it for me is that it has such strict rules that having those rules right now has been really important um, in writing anything, right? Because I come, <laughs> I come as most people who know my work know, I <laughs> come to poetry with the idea that there are no <laughs> rules um, and that like everything is a, you know, you, there's poems everywhere, right? Um, and so it's been this sort of flip for me to try and um, push the work into this kind of fixed box in a way um, and, and work on something that's totally different from uh, my usual writing. Yeah, thank you for saying that, Christine. Um, so many different parts of it. I mean, I, I, I feel like um, it's such a strange thing to share so often when someone has, you know, a personal loss or um, some kind of difficulty, um, in my experience at least, you know, if you're lucky, your friends really rally around you and give you a lot of support. But eventually it kind of gets old and it, you know, the casseroles stop coming and, and you know, we're all, I think, 
like so worn out at, from this pandemic. Um, and, and then on top of it, it's, it's almost embarrassing, at least for me to say like, I'm still, I'm not used to this. And in fact, you know, the closer I get to hopefully getting vaccinated, I find it's harder and harder to wait. Um, and I feel less and less patient. Um, and, you know, just various different parts of this are really uh, hitting me very, very hard. And um, I, I, a few months ago, tweeted something about how I'm really having a tremendous difficulty reading uh, and concentrating. And somebody uh, very concerned from my family uh, said, oh, you shouldn't say that on Twitter because you don't want people to know that you, you know, that you're having trouble reading. I'm like, what? who, who is going to, what, uh, I mean, who who is not having trouble reading? And even if some people aren't, even if that's providing them with this wonderful distraction, um, I, I feel like there's no shame at all in admitting that and admitting that it's still happening. Um, it's not over. But somehow I feel like because it's everywhere, you know, there's no one to bring anyone else a casserole everybody needs to bring everybody a casserole. Um, so thank you for saying that. And and I, I remember that when I first was speaking to V that I told them that, you know, one of the things that was most important to me was to try to clear off some of the other things that were on my plate so I could come back to working on Commonplace, which is such a joy for me. Um, and that it had become this this feel, like I just felt so guilty that we weren't putting out episodes, even though, um, you know, listeners were enormously supportive and patient and, you know, but I felt really terrible about it. And I didn't want Commonplace to become a chore and a burden because when I'm able to work on it, it's really the opposite, and and really it it, it really helps me feel um, hopeful and engaged. I'm really proud of those episodes that we put out, those ro global roll call episodes, and um, even though they, I think they kind of fried us, like it's they sort of broke us a little bit. Thank you for reminding me of that. I also feel like my memory has been very severely uh, negatively impacted by the pandemic um, or by my way of living in the pandemic. So I was going to say something else, which of course I can't even remember. Oh yeah. So I don't know, you know, maybe what we could play Doreen's goodbye right now in the episode instead of like keeping it till the end, because um, one of the things that's happened um, is that, as I said, we've had some team changes. Uh, I don't even remember. Was it last summer when Jay Hammond um, moved on? Um, I think so. Um, so Katie Fernelius uh, moved on to do more independent work. Jay Hammond moved on um, for a great teaching job and to do um, his own work as well. And then um, Doreen uh, moved on um, uh, to a new job and um, uh, and I'm you know so excited for all three of them. Doreen had been on Commonplace for a long time and was in charge of the social media, but she was also playing a lot of different roles and had her hand in each episode in a pretty significant way um, since, since she'd been a part of the team. And so that was really, I was very sad. <laughs> Every time somebody leaves, I go into like a state of grief. Um, I get very attached um, and, and uh, I find it very difficult to start up again. So maybe we will play Doreen's message right now, but I don't know where it is. So <laughs> we're going to have to put it in later. Hello, Doreen Wong here. If you listen to Commonplace's Taiwan episodes, you may have heard my voice and some of my stories. Rachel invited me to record a public goodbye of sorts to the team because I'm transitioning out of being a producer to begin work with an East Asian network of rights defenders, hopefully doing some storytelling around China's Belt and Road Initiative and the impacts of its developments abroad. But you never really say goodbye to Commonplace or Rachel. Once you enter the fold, you become part of the family, 
you know, meet the dog, get invited to bar mitzvahs and birthday parties. So really, this is just a moment to say thank you to Christine LaRusso for hiring me, to Rachel Zucker, who has always invited my disagreements with love and acceptance, to both for their fiery and steadfast commitment to justice, food, poetry, art, and kindness. I know, all the important things in life, right? I often think of poetry as an act of paying good attention. Listeners, I thank you for yours. It has been a great joy to make a show rooted in care and attention for each other, the world, and held together by a solid structure as well as space for experimentation. Okay, listener, just breaking in here to say a few words. Obviously, I found Doreen's beautiful goodbye, which you just heard. And if you haven't already figured it out, this is Commonplace Episode 92. I'll be back at the end of the episode to say more about a listener feedback survey that will be posted to our website. We'd really love to know your thoughts and feelings about Commonplace and about the things we talk about in this episode. You'll also get to hear Doreen again. At the end of the episode, she'll read I Must Pass Through, a short, gorgeous poem by the Taiwanese poet Among. I want to say a few things here before we go on with this special behind-the-scenes conversation. First of all, to Doreen. I wish you joy, success, and happiness in your new job. I wish you the continued ability to hold and experience all the feelings that make you whole. Your presence on the Commonplace team will be greatly, greatly missed. Second, before you hear Christine, Valentine, and I talk about a whole bunch of money stuff, I want to say how incredibly grateful I am to each and every single listener who has supported Commonplace, financially and otherwise, since we began in 2016. Thank you especially to those of you who have been able to stick with us as patrons in this period when we have released very few episodes. And thank you to those who have recently become patrons. Commonplace has no ads, no institutional funding, and is made possible entirely by listener support. I sometimes think this independence is short-sighted on my part, and from time to time I explore various affiliation models. Two years ago, for example, I was up for a full-time job at Adelphi and considered trying to move Commonplace to Adelphi didn't get that job. Just a few months ago, I recently applied for a job as a guest editor at Poetry Magazine. I really liked the people who interviewed me, and as part of my second round interview, I gave an in-depth presentation complete with graphs and charts about the founding growth and goals of Commonplace. I didn't get that position either, but I ended up convincing myself that I'd be a good fit for what Poetry Magazine could be and, more importantly, that Commonplace could partner with a well-resourced organization like the Poetry Foundation. I fantasized about continuing to do the work I love without having to do the parts I don't love. Fundraising, social media, promotion, design, branding, whatever that is, hiring, firing, organizational management. The things that make me feel like the only adult in the room heavy weight for me, especially during the dissolution of my marriage. This fantasy of joining a larger organization is about being able to outsource the promotional money-related parts of making a podcast and just focus on content. But just as I can never separate content from form as a poet, it's tricky or probably impossible to imagine that the way one promotes and funds and communicates publicly can be separated from the content of what one makes. None of us can operate outside of capitalism. And in some ways, Commonplace has struggled because I keep hiring working poets, musicians, and journalists to help me run a business. And each of these wonderful people has their own unique combination of feminist, Marxist, anti-capitalist, anarchist, progressive, social justice warrior qualities that make them each uniquely unfit to do promotional fundraising businessy work. But these are the people I love working with. 
So until we figure something else out, we're sticking with the patron model. So thank you, thank you, thank you to our patrons. And to become a patron, please visit our website, commonpodcast.com or patreon.com backslash commonplace podcast. Okay, so now back to the behind the scenes conversation. We maybe I'll talk a little bit about um, where we are with hiring someone um, for Doreen's spot. Um, so we we put out an, a request for a social media person, um, which is not exactly just tweeting and sending messages to Instagram and stuff like that, and and involves. Uh, a lot of feelings that uh, each of us has about social media and about um, how to have a kind of social media that's that's effective. But what are what does effective even mean to commonplace? And um, some we have some pretty negative feelings about social media, but also. Um, in terms of how we communicate with the greatest number of people and accessibility, we can't just not do social media or we're choosing not to um, not do social media. Anyway, we put out a, an ad and we had 120 people respond. And that was, uh, I, I spent about a week feeling like pretty depressed about that um, because every application seemed incredible. And um, I, I was like, who are all of these incredible people, like really, really overqualified, fascinating people. I wanted to hire everyone. And I'm not saying that um, as some kind of, uh, you know, uh, fake thing. Like I really actually spent some time thinking about um, before I had to be practically you know, talked down out of this crazy idea. I was like, what if I actually did just hire everyone and then later figured out what like organization to build with these people? Um, because it just, it just felt, uh, I don't know, awful to not to, to have 120 amazing people. Um, I also think I felt pretty scared about, what this meant for the economy and particularly for um, literary workers um, or people who would have applied for this particular position. It's a part-time job. It's an underpaid job as much as I think, you know, we're great people and hopefully, you know, doing something important and interesting. And I can understand why someone would want to apply. I was a little bit um, horrified that, you know, that, that so many people were interested and available for this kind of work. Um, and, and also thinking about, you know, how are we, uh, how am I um, participating in the perpetuation of the gig culture? And, you know, what are the ethics um, and the economics of the podcast, which is something we've been thinking about and talking about a lot. Um, and, you know, we're really hoping to talk more about this, not just about commonplace, um, but we are also hoping to talk more transparently about the economics and financial stuff around commonplace, but also um, trying to think about the economy of the literary world. Um, would either one of you, maybe V first and then Christine, maybe talk a little bit about the kind of episode or episodes we're interested in putting together? Yeah, um, I would love to talk about this uh, because, you know, this is kind of personal for me. Um, the idea of producing a kind of episode about episode or series of episodes um, or even just like a sort of sustained mode of inquiry and conversation about labor and um, the gig economy, the way that poets don't always necessarily understand the needs and sort of unique position within the literary community that literary workers occupy. Um, and, you know, especially coming directly off of Poets House, um, this is 
something that is very fresh on my mind. Um, it's also something that we're seeing on a national level. We're seeing um, the SPDs of the world, the poetry foundations of the world, the, <laughs> we're seeing the poetry foundations of the world. <laughs> like there's a foundation of poetry under the world. I love that. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, so we're seeing all of these excellent organizations that are really meaningful to a lot of people and do a lot of really meaningful work that have these cracks in their foundation that are, you know, filled in with exploited labor. And part of the reason that we want to engage with this in some way is as a sort of um, way to do better, you know, way to make sure that commonplace is a safe place um, and stays a safe place and has the potential to, you know, be, be a platform for moving the community in a more equitable direction um, overall. And so to that end, you know, we're thinking about people that we can interview that have been working at the intersections of, um, you know, literature and the arts and publishing and labor organizing. Yeah, that's one of the many sort of series of episodes that we're sort of thinking about right now. Yeah, and I'll just step in for one second to add that it's really personal for me as well. And, you know, the, the, I said this a little bit in the David Naiman episode, um, which I thought was going to be our update episode, and then we were going to be back up and running. But there have been a lot of things that I've been very nervous about talking openly on Commonplace about. Um, and that's been a very difficult position for me because I think that that um, my mode in when I'm uh, talking to someone in, in Commonplace is to be very, very open. And it's not uh, an easy position for me to be in to not talk about, you know, the things that are central and um, really concerning to me. Um, but I've been involved in a labor dispute with NYU since last summer. And I'm now, uh, NYU is one of the few uh, universities that has uh, a, a very strong union. Um, all the adjuncts are part of the union. Um, it, you know, I won't go into great detail, but more recently, I, uh, I've, I'm now a joint council member um, as part of the, um, about, of part of the union, and. It's just been a really interesting experience. I've taught at NYU for more than 10 years. Um, I was, uh, my courses were reduced. That's what it's called. Um, they basically said, no, you're not teaching your summer course anymore. And the way that they did it was uh, very upsetting um, to me, very uh, emotionally upsetting, um, but also financially very difficult. And so we the union uh, really stood behind me and grieved that course reduction. And I've always had very uh, mixed feelings about NYU because I love teaching at NYU. Like I truly, deeply love it. I love my graduate students. I love many, many, many of my undergraduate students. And I take teaching extremely seriously. Teaching is not just this thing that I do uh, to kind of, you know, make money so that I can write. I mean, teaching is, is really a skill. It's a passion. It's a vocation. It's a profession. It's, I take, you know, every part of it very seriously and I'm always trying to get better at it and, and, you know, figure out how to, how to do it very, very fully and deeply. Um, and, um, you know, I am not treated as a, I'm just like a gig worker there as an adjunct. And it's it's complicated because it's a really, really good adjuncting job. And um, so it's very hard to complain about it. But I also had the experience of being hired for one semester to teach at the Antioch Low Residency Program. And that's been absolutely fascinating just to see the way that um, job requirements are 
like handled, there's a, there's a very different level of transparency and accountability at Antioch than there is at NYU. Um, and I'm just really tired of, of not saying what I think about NYU, about its labor practices, about its global uh, exploitation, about the way that it is, um, you know, an incredible place um, to be a poet in certain ways and has had several scandals recently um, and has, I think, really failed to protect the extraordinary students um, that they get. Um, so this leads to a whole other topic, more about um, non-traditional modes of teaching, um, anti-racist um, modes of teaching, um, whether the workshop as a, as a sort of space is a safe space, um, you know, the economics, I feel very uncomfortable in, in participating in the economics of MFA programs if anyone is going into debt um, to get an MFA. I think that before COVID, um, what I heard was that, uh, I mean, I don't know if you came across this number either of you, but Guess how many people who complete MFAs get teaching jobs? What percentage? It's got to be like single digits, right? One percent. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I think that MFA programs are still often presenting themselves as a path to teaching. That's not the first thing they sell it as. Um, but, you know, what? what's, what's happening um, to all of these um, incredible... Uh, poets who are getting these degrees, and is there another way to do this? Um, also, many, if not most, um, MFA students are also teaching um, Introduction to Creative Writing or Prose Composition, so they're workers as well. Um, and some of them are unionized, almost very, very few um, are. Um, and so here we are again. And, and that passion argument is uh, is so divisive, like, oh, well, you know, you wanted to come here. Um, this is a competitive program. I mean, I feel like Christine, you must have a lot of feelings and thoughts about this, um, having having chosen NYU um, and gone through NYU. And I don't think that you thought you were going to like get your MFA and then right away get a teaching job. But um, talk to talk to us a little bit about your. Uh, interest in doing these kinds of episodes or this kind of inquiry into the kind of economics of the literary world? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts here. <laughs> um, I, I will start by saying I think that it's really interesting that um, I'm problematic that you know, I think that writing on its own sort of ha like has no value, right? Mm -hmm. Like no, no, like capital value, right? Like there's like what 0.005 if that of poets who make a living as poets, right? It sort of exists outside in a lot of ways of, um, or it should as like a practice maybe exist outside of the capitalist structures, but at the same time, right? We're being told like, you have to get the MFA to get the teaching job. Right. And so therefore we're already, you know, in have to sort of be inside of these um, professional institutions that are often really harmful, often give money, <laughs> to, you know, support, you know, fossil fuel, do whatever their investments support fossil fuels, um, you know, are unkind to their workers, et cetera, are run by you know, mega millionaires, you know, endowments um, supported by mega millionaires, right? So it's all like existing inside of this capitalist structure, even though like our own writing itself has no value. So it's like the way that we've like ascribed value to our work is through these professional jobs. And so like, so it's like the way to get closer to the writing, closer to the quote unquote literary world, whatever the fuck that means, like, is like <laughs> through these taking like jobs at whatever, the 92nd Street Y or something, um, and, or an adjunct teaching job. Um, and so I just, I'm just so interested in sort of like how that all intersects and plays out. Um, and then also on top of that, like how it plays out in terms of getting yourself published as a poet, right? Because the contests are also this whole other layer of 
um, horrible economic practice, like where, you know, folks, how much money you have. I mean, I've, I think I went on and on about this in our episode, uh, my episode of Commonplace already. So I'm not gonna go too much more into this, but the amount of money that poets have to spend to enter a contest to get their book published is just, it's out of control. It's like astronomical. I mean, I, I must've spent, I absolutely spent over a thousand dollars, absolutely. So like we're, we're told we cannot create a system that exists outside of the capitalist structure while at the same time, our writing has no value. So where, where, where does that leave us? You know, um, I mean, if I had my way, you know, of course we're burning out, burning down the whole like government system we've got here and starting over, but that's not gonna happen tomorrow. So, <laughs> I mean, it'd be great if it did. Um, so the place we're gonna start, I think is just, you know, looking at this, um, through many lenses, talking to many folks about um, their organizing experience um, or their current experience, maybe trying to organize, like sort of what is happening for them in their workplace and what it means for them to be organizing as a member of, you know, this community, again, whatever that means. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to, to um, get this episode off the ground and start doing the research on it. I think it's a really, really timely topic as, as B and, and Rachel, you've already talked about. Um, and I really believe that this is a unique moment in history for um, uh, collective power amongst workers. So, yeah, I feel incredibly uh, excited about that too. I mean, it, it, and at the same time, you know, it, it's just, um, I have a lot of uh, trepidation about uh changing up kind of the focus of commonplace like i think that that and the format and and the way we do things um particularly at a time when i am feeling so under-resourced and everybody is feeling is so incredibly under-resourced but also um i don't you know we we've we've really drawn a hard line um to not uh have any volunteer labor on commonplace and we're, we're, we're thinking about grants, we're trying to think about other kinds of sustainable ways of keeping commonplace afloat and, and paying everybody um, to do this important work because, you know, this is the trap, right? It's like, you know, you get to the point where you think, oh, yes, but it's so important to uh, talk about this this moment um and uh you know i i'll volunteer i'll volunteer my time if i can but you know once you start going down that path you're just perpetuating these incredibly oppressive systems um but what i was also going to say is i keep getting the feedback um from people who really love commonplace um like like when katie fernelius um left uh she was like i just think you're making this too complicated. What you're really good at um, and what you guys know how to do is uh, have conversations with single authors um, who are really awesome people and, you know, really diverse guests um, and, and, you know, these kind, like she had worked on the Taiwan episodes, which were incredibly time consuming. I'm incredibly proud of those episodes. I learned so much, um, obviously about Taiwan and about book selling and about, you know, the, the role that these independent bookstores have in, in Taiwan as really community spaces. But again, I think that maybe part of why Katie left was that those episodes were just really hard for us to make. We're not journalists. Um, we're, we don't have the resources um, or the experience um, of investigative journalists. Um, we come at this very part-time, you know, as poets, as um, creative people. Um, and we're still like all teaching ourselves to sound at it. Um, you know, so it's, it, but so that part seems very complicated to me. Um, and yet I do think, um, that the listeners have said over and over again, whatever you want to do, whatever you're passionate about, we're willing to, to listen. And I, that is like deeply, deeply encouraging to me. So an, a whole other sort of set of episodes um, that I've been really interested in doing is something about 
and it's it's a very wide topic. Like we're going to have to get much more focused in in our approach to this if we end up doing this at all. But um, you know, it came from a very personal uh, place for me, uh, having been a birth worker, um, a doula, childbirth educator, um, the experience of birthing and raising my children, but also very, very, very much my hysterectomy, um, and. One of the, ep- the one of the last episodes that I recorded in person right before the pandemic was with Jennifer Block, who is a health journalist um, who wrote a book called um, Everything Below the Waste: Why uh, Healthcare Needs a Feminist Revolution. And so, you know, when V came on board, I was like, "All right, V, you know, just just listen to this episode because I really want to put it out, even though it's so old." And I, you know, I really want to do a series of episodes about women's health, about healthcare, about the connection between um, creativity and the body. I want to do something about wellness, um, about. Um, chronic pain. I want to do something about physical differences, about mental health, mental wellness. We had never done an episode on um, disability poetics as a literary lens. When I re-listened to the Jennifer Block episode, basically a year later, just to see if we could just get it out there, I, I became, I really... I was really devastated when I listened to that episode, um, just going back and hearing myself talk to Jennifer uh, about my hysterectomy. There's a lot of things that have caused me pain and suffering and grief in my life, but I really don't regret any of them except the hysterectomy. And I am not over it. And I was just fucked up by it. So, you know, like many of these commonplace things, they, you know, they, I have a personal uh, connection, um, you know, to, to some piece of it. Um, an episode that I record, that conversation that I recorded recently was with um, Arielle Greenberg. And on that, I'm really, I mean, I'm so excited to, to um, bring that episode into the world. I mean, I've been wanting to record with her for a long, long time. And mostly we talk about sex. Um, we talk about pleasure, uh, writing about pleasure, writing from a, like, what is the poetics of pleasure? Um, how can we uh, encounter joy in our work, in our poetry, um, non-normative sex, um, the sort of, you know, really harmful sex education that most of us um, are given, um, and the connection between sex and um, creativity or sex and writing, um, sex and art, um, the physical, like how we even define sex, what sex even means, like why why would we even be talking about sex on commonplace? Well, for one, why aren't we talking about sex on commonplace and everywhere? You know, the same way, like why aren't we talking about like getting old or menopause or, you know, money? <laughs> so, but then the question always comes back to, okay, but we're commonplace. And what we do is we talk to single authors about their work and stuff like that. So um, it's, it's complicated and we're sort of trying to figure out like not just what topics we want to talk about, but who we are and what we can do and what we can do well and what we want to do and what people want. The other huge thing um, and I, this is probably the biggest reason, to be completely honest, um, that we've put out so few episodes um, in the past year is that two days ago was the one year anniversary of me coming to Maine. Um, and a few days after that uh, was sort of officially between my husband and me, the end of our marriage. And, um, you know, so for a year I've been getting divorced and it has, it has not been the amicable divorce that I so dreamed of. <laughs> um, it's been devastating and awful and I am shocked, you know? Yeah. I woke up uh, and I'm like, 
living out a marriage story, which I do not recommend watching because it's too close to home and too accurate. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, that is an example for me of, um, you know, there's so many small and medium obstacles to my doing, uh, writing to, to doing the kind of deep, uh, sort of pedagogical learning that I want to be doing. And it's a kind of grief and like, just practically, um, I can't believe how much time it takes, um, and, and how derailing, you know, every single part of it is, um, uh, you know, to see my name on a summons as the defendant, uh, in the divorce proceedings. Um, it felt bad and I was not able to have a productive day after that. Um, so obviously I would like to talk, uh, to people about not just divorce, people who've gotten divorced, but also, you know, all kinds of things. I mean, I, I I've said this on Twitter, but I, I find, you know, my whole life is upside down and inside out and the way I think about things and the way I think about my life and marriage as an institution. Why, why, why did I ever get married? I, I don't know. Um, heterosexuality seems completely bizarre to me right now. I don't get it. Um, I do it, but I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. Um, have some very strong new feelings about, I don't know, everything. And um, I don't know what I am and I'm not allowed to talk about. Um, I, I was tweeting um, a little bit about my divorce uh, about six months ago and several people were like, you shouldn't do that until you have a settlement. I, I, I mean, what's going to happen to me? I don't know. But um, as most people know, if they've listened to Commonplace at all, this question of what I can and can't say, should and shouldn't say, what's private, what's public, what's private or what's what is sort of taboo and limited um for your one's own safety or for the benefit of others and why um that is a deep deep obsession um for me um to try to think about the ethics of privacy and confession and exposure and so as i you know go through this divorce um that is incredibly confusing um all right, one of you stop me. This is just going on and on. I, I have a couple of things to add. Um, not to talking about your divorce, obviously, but <laughs> to the larger conversations about things that um, that we would like to see it happen at Commonplace. Um, and one of those things uh, that I think intersects a lot with the things that you're kind of talking about, you know, reproductive health and sexual health, uh, medical agency, sexual pleasure, the body in public space is trans people's experience. Um, again, that's something that's kind of personal to me. Um, and I think that uh, there's a lot to sort of talk about there. I think um, there is this dearth of research about how healthcare impacts us in any way. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, I have always had a very um, kind of equitable relationship with my doctor. And granted that is a very privileged experience and not all trans people have this experience, but um, you know, I've been able to do my own research and make my own decisions in a way that feels really radical in some ways. And I think that that has, has a lot to sort of say with a um, broader sort of feminist analysis of how we talk about the body and how we talk about um, medicine and what the body needs, where the body goes, what we do with the body, what we can do with the body. I, I'm, I'm just really excited to see how these different sort of perspectives on feminism from a sort of like um, the, the broad kind of conversation between cis women and trans women and trans men and non-binary people and how all of us kind of engage with this question of agency and the body um, 
in, in a really direct way throughout our entire lives. And, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of room for that conversation to just keep growing and growing and growing. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that is at the heart of what I love about this book by Jennifer Block, because it's not just like, oh, um, you know, we need more women doctors. Um, it's it's really a, a, a deep look. And this is why I feel like it has so much to do with um, being a, a, a writer and a maker and a thinker, um, because it, it, she's really asking some questions about authority, about expertise, about about. Um, whether anecdotal, right, even that word is so charged, but like where, what is research, right? There's a, there's a difference between a gold standard scientific study and, 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 you know, anecdotal evidence. And that's really important. It's important that we understand that. But, but this idea, medical care or interventive medical care as a form of empowerment uh, is really problematic when you get caught up in a medical system, which basically often, not always, and I'm really glad that you're not having this experience, um, discounts the patient's understanding of their own body um, or the patient's, you know, conception of what health looks like or what health means. We're, we're going back over and over again to power structures, right? Like who has power over their own story, over their own body, over their own identity? Um, what do you do when you, uh, are in conflict with any kind of mainstream normative uh, power system that has been excluding you and your way of thinking and your way of living. But and there's there's so few people out there who um, are not practicing whether it's teaching or medicine or ideas about around employment or what it means to be successful or you know what it means to write good writing who's in charge of all of you know of all of these systems um and that's why you know christine i hope that you're right that we're at this potential uh, breaking point moment or breaking open moment it's so personal and it's also, none of us is alone, even if we don't share all of the same lived experiences. I feel like there's this deep connection between, you know, I just keep seeing the same things over and over again everywhere I look. Oh, it's power again. Oh, it's power again. It's exploitation again. It's not believing someone. It's not, it's not, um, you know, it's, and it's, and it's, you know, where do you even begin? Yeah. The, and it's, you, you want to talk more about things that get in the way of writing. This is, these are the things, these are the things that we deal with on a daily basis that keep us from the page, whether it's reading or writing. And I think one of the, I mean, there are a million horrible things about the pandemic, but one of the opportunities that it's sort of created is to um, make those things visible in a much bigger way and allow us to sort of step back and reevaluate our relationship to these structures. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Christine, what am I forgetting? What are we forgetting? Well, unfortunately, my internet cut up very briefly when V was talking, so I hope I'm not repeating something or responding oddly. Um, but a lot of what you've been talking about, sort of like health and wellness and all these things really um, got me thinking about, you know, during the pandemic, I feel like there's been a lot more rhetoric around like self-care and wellness and like that you know, like, oh, no, today you can just say no and just take a bath. And like how that is so wrapped up in a particular kind of like cis white woman um, rhetoric that like takes zero account um, for like folks who don't have the time to sort of take those moments. Right. Um, that's been um, something I, I've been paying attention to a little more because I feel like it, that sort of like Especially, especially something in like this positivity 
there's like a, I think a push right now of like, oh, just, just stay positive, you know, just, it's like, no, no, I think there's also, it's really important also to feel like some things are bad and feel bad about them and like access those emotions and then like react appropriately, right? Because otherwise we're not sort of criticizing some of the structures in the world around us. Um, I think I have a lot of confusion and shame around this idea of, of self-care. Um, I, I will say uh, I just did this. Um, I'm like, you know, embarrassed to say this. Why, why am I more embarrassed to say this than that I would like to sue the pants off of NYU? I don't know. Um, but I just did this 40 days daring to rest um, program with um, this incredible person, um, Karen Brody. Um, and I signed up for it a little bit on a, on a, on a lark um, because um, my friend Arielle said that I should and, and had known Karen from before. And I, on the one hand, like, you know, uh, some of my other friends who have heard about it were like, you're paying someone to tell you to rest. You're paying someone to tell you to lie down or close your eyes. Really? Um, I, I have to say for me, this has been a very profound experience and I am now joining. Um, I am now paying to join the Daring to Rest Academy um, where I will learn more about Yoga Nidra, which is this. I have never really fully experienced meditation in the way that I have recently. And um, yeah, it's it's embarrassing to admit. I feels like a little bit like I'm part of a cult. Um, at the same time, I think that this kind of training and this kind of practice for me um, is going to help me do the kind of work that I really, really want to do, that I really, really care about um, for others and for myself. And one of the biggest kind of lessons of it for me, which is something that I've been trying to, to, to get to, is the ability to hold opposites. And I'm sure I'll talk about that um, in other, in other forms and other ways. But, you know, I've been thinking intellectually and conceptually about trying to break down binaries or see outside of binaries, all different kinds of binaries. Um, and I feel like so much of these exploitative power systems of oppression rely on these kinds of ideological binaries um, and a kind of absolutism and an all or nothing feeling. And to and 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 even though intellectually i have i have been seeing like wait this is a real not just flaw in 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 my education and in my way of thinking but it's it's causing real problems in the world. Um, I wasn't really able to get outside of it. Every time I thought I was outside of it, I was inside of it. Um, just like redefining the terms of the, bi I was like a new binary. Um, and I feel like I'm getting it for the first time in my life through this program. And I feel like, I, I was saying this to V, I feel like poetry, creative writing should be taught the way yoga is taught. Um, you know, it, it's it's not just the content of this course, but it's also uh, the sort of way the class is taught in a very uh, non-expert based, non-hierarchical learning style that everyone deserves access to. You know, the way that we're, that we're educated is, you know, a whole other system of harm for, for many, many people. Um, but so that is very, it becomes very confusing to me, um, this question of self-care which I both, you know, really want for everyone and want for myself, um, feel sort of ashamed when I don't feel I deserve it, feel, you know, awful when I admit to having partaken in it because it makes me like an entitled person, um, you know, who doesn't realize that not everybody has access to this. Um, so I think that's one of, you know, several different kinds of, of, real confusions around like, you know, does everybody have a right to feel okay to define their own terms of well-being, um, their own goals? I mean, I think so. Uh, but how do we get there? How do we remotely, remotely get there? As I said in the last episode, I've read so few books 
And I have been turning to a lot of kind of like self-help types of uh, things. And as a, you know, poet in a fancy institution with a fancy education, on the one hand, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that and to say that, like, I really need to either watch dumb TV or read these, like, you know, I have some books that I haven't read yet about, about divorce. Um, I read, and now I'm totally blanking on her name. Um, see, if I was talking about some obscure poet, both of you would know right away. Anyway, I loved this book. I loved this book. I found it utterly helpful. And, and, and like, but it, in literary circles, again, whatever that means, like, to admit that this was the book, which I can't even remember what's called, um, that ha that ha probably has, was most important to me during the pandemic, um, you know, the non-literary book is very confusing, um, but it has been enormously helpful. Is it self-care? I don't know. You've so, mentioned this to me several go. times. Actually. I would. I know. I'm so. I, I. And yet. And yet. Have you bought the book? No. Not yet, but I. <laughs> I've told myself I'm not allowed to buy any more books until I read all the ones <laughs> I have on my desk, but okay. it will be on the list. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's going to be like the, the right book for you. I, you know, I have no idea. Um, just like, I really don't, I don't know if every if everybody in the world needs to lie down and close their eyes and hold a rock and call it a touchstone and, you know, hold opposites. And I don't know. I know that I that exactly as you're saying, V, like I I'm not sure. <laughs> Christine just typed hard pass on that, Rachel. Look, I mean, this is the thing, you know, some people need to lift weights and some people need to run really fast and some people, you know, um, you know, whatever it is, I don't know, but maybe some people just need to read a lot of poetry books, which is great. There is actually a self-help book that I have um, turned to frequently throughout my creative life that I also don't usually admit to because it's it's a self-help book and there's a stigma around that mm -hmm. in the creative world, but um, it's Twyla Tharp's The Creative Habit. I don't remember the subtitle, but The Creative Habit, Twyla Tharp, um, famous choreographer. And it's really interesting how she connects choreography to poetry and to all forms of art, um, but really comes at the uh, experience of creativity from a very like embodied place as a dancer. Like her body is her creative practice. How does she situate her body? How does she take care of her body in a way that allows her to be creative? And it, you know, it's there are problems with the book, but it's it's an interesting book. And I think um, poets should read more self-help books because poets need to get their heads out of their asses and <laughs> you know take care of ourselves and take care of each other a lot more. Right. Absolutely. And also advocate for systems to take care of us also or to provide care. Um, and I think that's like really the stumbling block of, of self care, right? Like, you know, it's the same way that we don't want to say like, well, but you get to be a poet, so you don't need to be paid any money. Um, uh, it's that same thing, like, you know, well, you, you know, if you just took better care of yourself, you wouldn't need health care. Well, no, that's ridiculous. Um, you know, or if you just uh, were happier, then you wouldn't need a salary. So we would really, really, really love, if anyone is listening to this, to know what are the obstacles for you as as a human being right now um, in terms of doing um, making things in the world? I'll keep it open like that. Like what what feeds you? Um, what makes it really difficult for you to continue your practice, whatever it is? Um, and and would it be helpful for for us to talk about that? If you have a grant or access to grant information or ideas, if you run an arts organization, um, but a good one that didn't just union bust, fire everybody, um, or isn't like 
deeply racist and you want to talk to us, that would be great. Um, you know, please reach out. If you'd like to donate money specifically for uh, some episodes on the literary world, the literary labor world, or um, health uh, kinds of conversations, get in touch with us as well. We uh, will be sending out a link in the newsletter, and I, I think we'll probably also post it on our website for a survey just to try to keep this conversation going and and um, create more places um, for listeners to make requests um, and provide feedback um, and share stories and um, not just information, but anecdotes. We hold anecdotes in very, very high esteem. Um, that is, uh, we are very interested and care about your experience, both in terms of uh, listening to, to Commonplace and just being alive. Um, so we'd like to keep this going. We're hoping to be using our SpeakPipe um, voicemail stuff um, more actively in the future. I mean, I think no matter what kinds of episodes uh, we make next, the most important thing I think to all of us is to be doing work we really care about um, and to be engaged with the listeners and to and to try to make work that you care about that's important to you that's that feeds you in some kind of way whether it's to be distracting to you um, or to remove some of the obstacles that are there between you and creative work whether it's reading writing living caring for others so I think that's pretty much it. This is what's been going on with us and who we are. And hopefully we'll get a new episode out soon. But thank you for listening to this one in the meantime. And I think that's it. This has been episode 92 of Commonplace with me, Rachel Zucker, and Commonplace producers, Valentine Conady and Christine LaRusso. We are thrilled to welcome our two new team members. Langa Chinyoka is our new social media manager, and Nancy Huan is our new listener patron outreach swashbuckler. Meanwhile, I'd like to remind you that you can find our listener survey at commonpodcast.com or you can respond to some of these questions via email or social media. We'd love to hear from you. In a slightly less serious vein, we'd love to know what you think of self-help books. Do you read them? If so, do you have one you'd like to recommend? And can you guess which book I was talking about in this episode but couldn't remember the name of? You're listening to music by Judah Darwin Zucker Gorin. I'll let Doreen Wang have the last word as she reads us a poem. But until we meet again, listener, be safe, be well, and thank you for listening. And now, finally, I end with a short poem by the Taiwanese poet Among. This translation by Fiona C. Lorraine is featured in Brooklyn Rail. I Must Pass Through by Among. I must pass through my daughter's vagina to be born again. Very painful this time. The pain inside and outside feels complete. No regret. A pain that kills an ox from afar before it decides to charge forward, before its run becomes speed and a blade. We throw a fruit out, but this time, elasticity is artfully controlled. No panic and chaos. The world rotates without a mask asking for its face in a frame. We climb up the ladder and on stage, adjust from the top ceiling the angle of projectors. <laughs>